Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson and the truth. Hmm, it's complicated. I apologize. I apologize for inadvertently misleading this house. But to say that I did it recklessly or deliberately is completely untrue. Welcome to the FT's Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, George Parker. Coming up, the former Prime Minister testified for his political life this week. But is it enough to save his political career? The FT's Stephen Bush and our Westminster correspondent Jasmine Cameron Shileshi are on hand to discuss. Plus, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak easily won a vote on a new post-Brexit deal for Northern Ireland. But while the Tory rebels may have been crushed, the Democratic Unionist Party are still saying no to returning to Stormont. We'll be looking at the fallout with our Ireland correspondent Jude Webber and the FT's Brexit expert and public policy editor Peter Foster. So it was a resounding victory for Rishi Sunak. 515 MPs voted for his post-Brexit Windsor framework for Northern Ireland. Three former Tory leaders, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Ian Duncan-Smith, voted against. But it felt like they were fighting old battles. Generals in search of an army. Just 22 Tory MPs in total voted against Sunak's deal. But among those unhappy with it are DUP MPs. And without them on board there won't be a swift restoration of Northern Ireland's power-sharing government at Stormont. Here's the DUP's leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson. Whilst undoubtedly improvements have been made, we have not yet fully addressed this fundamental problem, which is the continued application of EU law for the manufacturing of all goods in Northern Ireland. Joining me are the FT's Ireland correspondent Jude Webber and our public policy editor, Peter Foster. So, Peter, it was a crushing victory for Sunak, most Tory MPs, Labour, the SNP and the Liberal Democrats supported his deal. Was it a watershed moment? I think it was, George. I think if we go back to 2018, 2019, where this rump of purist, hardcore Brexiters ran everybody ragged and in fact drove us to the very hard Brexit that we ended up with, I think you know the tide went out and we really saw that actually people are moving on. There's a kind of general exhaustion and Rishi Sunak, by patiently putting together a practical deal, it doesn't magic the protocol away or the Windsor framework as we're supposed to call it, but by getting a practical deal that the poll suggests satisfies the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland has shown what you can do when you put the dogma aside and you just focus on the pragmatics. And the scale of that rebellion, I think, shows that a lot of Tory MPs have moved on as well. So it was a big moment for Sunak in defeating the pro-Brexit European Research Group, which now looks like a shadow of its former self, as you were saying there, Peter. This was Steve Baker, a former ERG chair, urging Boris Johnson to come out of the forest and accept the war is over. You know, he's got a choice. He can be remembered for the great acts of statecraft that he achieved, or he can risk looking like a pound shop Nigel Farage. And I hope he chooses to be remembered as a statesman. 
Well, of course, that was before the vote where Boris Johnson voted against the deal at the head of a rebellion, including many members of the ERG. But Peter, did this feel like the beginning of the end for the ERG? I think it did, really. It's hard to see where they're going to come back on issues where you're prepared to put sovereignty, control over and above practical considerations, which in this case was getting the Northern Ireland Protocol to work, getting that Irish sea border that's created by the protocol to work in order to unlock future deals with Europe on defence and security. The Horizon Europe Science Programme is being discussed. It just opens the door to a whole load of practical and sensible advances to get Brexit working, which is what all Brexiteers want. Of course, the big thing that's still coming up is this retained EU law bill, this thing about let's burn up all EU-derived law by the end of the year, that's a real putter-offer for industry, for investors, etc. And that one is going to have to be addressed. But that's another issue where if Sunak takes a pragmatic approach, focuses on where divergence can bring benefits, not doing it for its own sake, I think he can get that one over the line as well. Yeah, maybe see the bill quietly diluted in the House of Lords as it goes through its passage in the latter part of the year. So Jude, the DUP, as we were saying, voted against the so-called Windsor framework. What are they saying about the deal? Well, they're saying it just doesn't go far enough. I think you have to realise that there's some people in the DUP who will never be satisfied. They set seven tests famously, and they've been using those as the yardstick to measure any deal by. But it almost feels like they pick on something different each time to say, no, this is the thing that we object to. This is the core of the issue. Basically, they're saying that it's still not unfettered access. People in Northern Ireland are not able to trade with Great Britain as easily. Access to the UK internal market isn't fuss-free, it isn't the same, and there's still EU laws in place and there's still oversight of the European Court of Justice. So what they're asking for are things that the UK government just can't deliver. The appetite clearly has moved on. The Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, said on Thursday that the balls in the DUP's court about whether to accept this They'd like additional negotiations. They won't get that. But they're hoping for some additional clarity. They've been promised a bill that will copper fasten Northern Ireland's place as part of the union. That's going to be a game of semantics, really, because the Northern Ireland Act from 1998 already says that Northern Ireland's place is as part of the union and its constitutional status can only change if the majority of the people in Northern Ireland decide. But, you know, they're obviously looking for a a few things to sort of stroke their egos in in a way, you know, some things to sweeten the deal for them. But practical and substantive changes at this point are just not going to happen now. I just ran through the parties that voted for this deal in the House of Commons this week, including the SNP and the Liberal Democrats. The DUP look increasingly isolated. Do they actually mind No, no, they don't mind. They don't mind at all, I think. For them, this is a point of principle. But I think also it's worth remembering that there's a bit of a difference between the MPs. There's eight DUP MPs, but they have legislators at Stormont who are generally believed to be a little bit more practically minded, in part because their salaries have been cut, because Stormont's not active at the moment. So these are people who are feeling the very practical brunt of Stormont not being up and running. So there are some hardliners in the party who don't mind whether they're seen as a minority for them. It's the principle of the thing. But ultimately, it's going to be a battle over practicality versus principle. And I'm sure you're going to ask me this, but I mean, ultimately, they will go back into Stormont. Hang on, hold that thought, Jude, because I am going to ask you that in a minute. That is the $100 million question, if and when they go back into Stormont. But before we get onto that, Peter, the Windsor deal has gone through its main EU and UK legal processes now. Trust has been restored to a certain extent. What can the two sides do next? 
So I think the obvious thing that they can do is to start rebuilding the security partnership. You'll remember Theresa May, before Boris Johnson came along, actually had a text that was going to be a partnership agreement and part of that was going to be a security and defence chapter. The big myth, really, from the deal is that there are no talking shops. In every quarter, the leaders of the European Union, they come to the European mm. summit because of Brexit. The UK is not there. We need to create some architecture, some infrastructure outside the G7 that allows the UK to start rebuilding its relationship. And that's very really important to just pick that up because, as you know, I used to work in Brussels and it was that thing where you had ministers in the room often kicking their heels waiting for some side deal to be struck with the Italians on milk quotas but just spending a lot of time together sharing gossip sharing political concerns that doesn't exist at the moment does it? No, and not just for ministers, but for Sherpas too, right? So when there's a crisis in the bond markets or there's a war in Ukraine, those officials, the Sherpas, the people who keep mm. the diplomatic plumbing running in the background, when they pick up the phone, they need to know who they're talking to. And that comes from FaceTime, from, as you say, sorting out the rows about Italian milk quotas, right? Being in those bureaucratic trenches, that's where you build the relationship. And those relationships have half-lives, right? Mm. The longer you let them atrophy, the harder it is to rebuild them. And it's particularly hard when you don't have lots of excuses to be in the room because you're not shared on the paperwork in Brussels, etc. So you need to work doubly hard to build those relationships. And frankly, they've been on the go slow under Frost and Johnson. There was a pretty much a don't bother, we're not engaging. And that's really got to change. And so the first thing they can do is start to put some architecture in place to do that. And then we can talk about Horizon. I know Sunak's worried that there's a diminishing cost-benefit return on Horizon. But the thing about not doing that is that the science community wants that to keep their relationships going. But you've got to think about the long-term relationships. So I think that's where you start before you get into discussions about how you deepen the trade and cooperation agreement and all of that. Okay. Now, Jude, do you think the spirit of compromise we're starting to see emerge in UK-EU relations could start to extend to the DUP? And the big question, if and when do you think they'll return to Stormont? Well, I mean, it's not going to be swift, I think. But the general consensus seems to be that the DUP ultimately have nowhere else to go, so they will end up having to go back into Stormont. It's more a question of when and not if. And Geoffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, is a moderate within the party, and he's seen as something of a pragmatist. And he keeps on saying how much of a committed devolutionist he is and how much of a devolutionist party the DUP is. So he's signposting everything. Now, you know, there's certain things coming up in the calendar. We've got local elections on May the 18th. I think it's quite unlikely that they will go in before then. Before the May 18th elections, we'll have the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement from 1998, which is what set up power sharing in the first place and ended the Troubles. That's on April the 10th. Sometime around this period, we're going to have a visit by Joe Biden. It probably won't be for the April the 10th anniversary, but it could be the following week. Unionists don't particularly care. I mean, especially because Biden is very proud of his roots in the Republic of Ireland. So that's not something that they're setting their clocks by. Mm. Not long after that, we have the marching season in July the 12th being the highlight of the unionist calendar. So they might want to wait until that is passed, which would bring us to the autumn. Now, that sounds like an awfully long time, but I think there will be pressure on the DUP to go back in before then. Maybe the feeling had been that Sunak would not put pressure on them until after the May elections. We'll have to see. But the first real indication of what will happen next, we should get next week, because Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, has appointed an eight-person panel to canvas unionists' views on the Windsor framework, and they have to report back by the end of next week. So that'll be our first indication. Okay, Pete, you've written a lot about 
how this will improve things on the ground in Northern Ireland, which ultimately, I suppose, is what this is trying to achieve. Does it make Northern Ireland the best place to do business in Europe? <laughs> As Rishi Sunak suggested. Listen, I think if you get the DUP back into Stormont, you're going to see a flood of investment from America particularly to try and get this thing moving. Remember, there's a consent vote in 2024 where uh, there has to be a majority of the MLAs, of the members of the Legislative Assembly in Northern Ireland, need to vote to continue the trade portions. What you don't want is that when that vote happens, it becomes another boycott moment for the DUP. What you want is for the Windsor framework to have made that Irish sea border work effectively and create investment, create a sense of well-being, create a sense of political prize here, that they are the entrepot, the hinge between the US and the UK market and the EU in a way, of course, that GB is no longer. And then I think it will get harder and harder for the facts on the ground to be gainsaid by the unionist community. Because of course, the longer this goes on, the more the kind of moderate middle in Northern Ireland are disenfranchised, the more the moderate middle are ignored. If you look at the polls, they care about the cost of living, they care about the NHS, ridiculous waiting lists in Northern Ireland. Mm. The longer the DUP stay out, the more those people are alienated. And remember now, post-Brexit, a vote for unification is a vote to rejoin the EU. Yeah. Right? And so English nationalism, if it delivered a very hard Brexit, has a corollary in Irish nationalism. And so this is why I think the DUP are going to get short shrift in Westminster. Peter, Jude, thanks very much. So is Boris Johnson's political career toast? As we just heard, he ended up on the losing side in a heavy parliamentary drubbing on Brexit. But that was just the start of his problems. Former Prime Minister was forced to give evidence under oath on the King James Bible to the Commons Privileges Committee this week. And if the committee concludes he deliberately misled Parliament over the Partygate scandal during the Covid pandemic, Mr Johnson could lose his parliamentary seat. Sir Bernard Jenkin was among those on the committee to voice scepticism on the former Prime Minister's justifications, asking him at one point to explain a photo that showed Mr Johnson drink in hand at a leaving party for a staff member in 10 Downing Street. Can we move on to examine the compliance with the Covid rules at this gathering? You told the House the rules were followed at all times, so you must have thought the gathering was reasonably necessary for work purposes. We know that the gathering attracted fixed penalty notices. Uh, so, in fact, the police have judged that it broke the rules. Why did you think it was within the rules? I thought it was essential for work purposes, or reason, at least reasonably necessary for work purposes, because <laughs> for the reason I've, I've given Sir Bernard, it was necessary to show that uh, the, the business of the government was being carried on. That's what we had to do. That's what I had to do. I, I know that, but it's, it's what you said about it to the House of Commons is what matters. Uh, yes. So um, with me are the FT's political commentator, Stephen Bush, and our political correspondent, Jasmine Cameron Shileshi. So, Stephen, how did Boris Johnson do? I think not well, to be honest. He went into this hearing with a situation where public opinion is basically decided and they think he did mislead the House of Commons. And MPs of all parties would rather give him a nine days or less suspension because that doesn't trigger any of the possible paths to a by-election. And broadly speaking, I think most MPs think it's in no one's interests for there to be a by-election. If you're the Labour Party, you would prefer the Conservative psychodrama to continue. Essentially, there is no good scenario for you. If Boris Johnson were to somehow win, then, you know, that would obviously reopen all of the, oh, never write him off, he's their biggest asset. You know, all of the stuff that you want closed down. If you lose the by-election, that opens up all of the, oh, the Tory party's doomed, stuff and he doesn't want aired. But I think in terms of giving particularly conservative members of that committee 
some pretext to go, okay, there was a problem, but it should be nine days, not 10 or 14. I think they probably will still find some form of words which allows them to do that. But he didn't really give them the thing they were looking for. And he was incredibly bad-tempered with those Conservative members who kind of are his lifeline here. Yeah, Jasmine, what did you think of his performance? It was quite interesting. So it was a great bit of parliamentary theatre. You had Johnson swearing on the Bible. It felt very American. You had Harriet Harman looking incredibly stern. But I don't think we really learned anything new. But we did get an insight into Johnson's thinking around that time and how he mentally justified it to himself. I do think what was striking are the moments where he lost his temper, because I feel like Johnson's actually very good when he's in front of a loyal crowd, where he can sort of joke his way out of a tight spot. I think he's quite bad when he's pressed on the detail and there's nowhere for him to hide. And I think his sort of snapping at some of the MPs reflected the fact that it really looked like he was pushed up against a corner. And what was quite striking as well was this overall tone of exceptionalism, his answers to MPs. I think it's very easy to forget that during the pandemic, the rules are actually made very clear cut to the public. People didn't see sick family members, people missed out on huge milestones in their life because we thought that we all had to stay at home and protect the NHS. And so to sit there and tell the public and tell MPs that actually, well, we followed the guidance as best as we could, it all felt a little bit flimsy and and arrogant because actually the rules were very clear cut and he was in front of a podium and in front of MPs often several times a week explaining those rules to the public. So the fact that there seemed to be so many exceptions in number 10, I don't think will go very well with the public or MPs. Well, yeah, not many leaving parties attended by most people during that period. It's true. Stephen, do you think it was clear from the evidence you heard, either in written form or oral form from the former Prime Minister, that Boris Johnson either intentionally or recklessly misled Parliament? I think so. The thing which is still the funniest bit to me is citing in evidence in his defence, someone saying, can I say... I can't think of any situation in which anyone has been talking about what they ought to say publicly or if you're having a sort of meeting before a meeting, can I say, when you are not kind of admitting that what you're about to say is not the truth. So I think were I kidnapped and end up in the unfortunate position of being an MP on this committee, I don't see how I would be able to escape concluding that he hadn't recklessly or willfully misled. I mean, my sense was it wasn't very likely to change anyone's minds, frankly, what happened this week, Jasmine. Big question, I suppose, now is what does the committee do? We expect them to produce their verdicts sometime after the Easter holidays. Stephen's just set out the fact that the 10-day suspension from the House of Commons is a nuclear option that can trigger a series of events which leads to a parliamentary by-election and Boris Johnson probably losing his seat. What do you think the committee's going to do? I think the wording is quite significant, this idea of knowingly having misled Parliament, I thought the defences that he put forward were quite interesting. So first of all, he argued that he was given assurances by his team, notably people like Jack Doyle and James Slack, who were his director of comms. At some instances, they were actually at the event, so he was given assurances by them before he went to the House of Commons. I mean, the counter to that is he didn't need to be so categorical in his statements to the Commons. But I do think he's been advised quite well by his legal team. And I think pinning him down on what exactly he knew before he went to the House is actually going to be quite difficult. I think he's got lots of different things he can point to and say, well, you can't say I knowingly did this. Yeah, well, they're also applying a test of whether he recklessly misled Parliament, of course, which is, could he have actually found out what was going on inside his own house Mm. (laughs) a bit more vigorously? But Stephen, let's assume for a moment that he is suspended, but for less than 10 days, so he doesn't end up being kicked out of Parliament, at least for now. Do you think he's basically finished? 
as a frontline politician? I think for two reasons the last week has been catastrophic for him. There's been this vote in which he made a big song and dance about voting against it. And if you look at the names of the 22 people who joined him in those division lobby, actually most of them were hardcore Brexiteers who he has always had a difficult relationship with. And then the only other people in the kind of axis of people who hate Rishi Sunak and want to put one over him were himself, Jake Berry, Liz Truss, and Simon Clark. You know, Alex Shelbrook, someone who basically was sacked for no fault of his own to the you know, kind of offence of not ticking any diversity boxes and having backed Liz Truss, didn't vote against. So he can't even command the support of all of the dispossessed and the never-possessed. And an MP who's in the key group of people to think about, i.e. people who wanted Boris Johnson to go late last year, voted for Liz Truss over Rishi Sunak, but then backed Rishi Sunak. So the people whose support changes whether or not Rishi Sunak's project is viable, said to me, God, I'd forgotten how much I love having a normal prime minister again. Mm. And I think then one of the things which has been really damaging this week is for Conservative MPs in the middle of the party to be reminded how much they really hated it by the end. It wasn't just party gate. It was this sense that there would always be another gate. Yeah. There would always be another story about money, another story about the people who shouldn't have been appointed to things. And I think that what they've really once again been reminded of is just how much actually, even the ones who don't necessarily align with Rishi Sunak, just like that the prime minister does prime ministery things. Yeah, so I think that, Jasmine, we've had quite a few conversations like that this week. I mean, just listening to Boris Johnson relaying as a matter of fact that people were drinking at their desks on a Friday and the fact that he appointed Dominic Cummings essentially to run the government and he now accuses him of being a, a mendacious character and so on. Stephen, you mentioned the fact that support amongst the Tory MP seems to be dwindling. It was fascinating, I thought, Jasmine, that the Daily Telegraph on their front page day had a big headline saying, the cults of Boris and Brexit are simultaneously imploding. Mm. Is that how it feels to you? Yeah, I think so. One of the MPs I spoke to when I asked for their verdict, they described Johnson as yesterday's man talking about yesterday's news. There is a feeling that actually, yes, he had a couple of supporters in the room and there's always going to be those diehard pro-Johnsonites, but that support is dwindling. And I think Stephen is right, but I think towards the end of Johnson's premiership and leading into the Truss era, there was a real sense of chaos and it really felt as though the Conservatives couldn't govern and key bits of legislation and white papers, like none of that got done. And actually, in recent weeks, we've seen Sunak make real progress on some quite tricky issues, be that on Brexit via the Windsor framework or the Rwanda deal. And I think Johnson is such a divisive figure. There are some people who will forever be loyal to him and some people who will forever hate him. That isn't healthy or constructive in politics. There is a sense of weariness Tory MPs don't want to be fighting over Brexit, over Partygate. They just want to be governing and looking forward to the next election, hopefully holding on to their seats. OK, you write Boris Johnson off at your peril, as we all know. Is there a scenario, Jasmine, that the Conservative Party lose the next election and then thrashing around and deciding what to do next, they turn back to the man that's proven himself an unparalleled election winner for the Conservatives? I mean, maybe. I think what's interesting about Johnson is that he's always in the background. He's always lurking, ready to pounce, ready to launch some leadership bid. I think that would really depend on how badly the Conservatives lost if they lost. If Labour were left with quite a small majority, there might be a coalescing behind Sunak. If it was a complete wipeout, there may be a feeling of, OK, maybe the party needs to start from scratch. And then maybe Johnson comes in. But I don't know. I do just think... He's such a discredited and divisive figure, and I question why he'd even want to when he could make so much money in the private sector doing lots of speeches. 
Well, I suppose Churchill, his hero, spent a bit of time in opposition after the Second World War, Stephen? He did. I, mean, I think Jasmine's absolutely right that it's a bit mystifying why he wants to do this thing. Is It's not like he did anything meaningful with his time, and he clearly hated it. But I think, in some ways, the tragedy of him is he's doomed to always want this job that he was very bad at, didn't particularly try and do. I guess my instinct is that if they do lose the next election, I still think it'll be Kemi Badnock. They'll want to turn to someone who's fresh and new. But I think that... Just as with Margaret Thatcher, where the fact she wasn't able to lead them into the 1992 election kind of haunted the Tory party for some time afterwards. You can see this myth of, if only we'd stuck with Boris, is still powerful in parts of the Conservative right and in his supporters club in the mail in particular. And that will continue to disfigure Conservative politics, unless, of course, Rishi Sunak is able to pull off a surprise win in 2024. Indeed. Stephen Bush, Jasmine Cameron-Shessie, thank you very much. And that's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. The FT's Political Fix was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Manuela Saragossa. The sound engineer is Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>